Emily was combing her baby daughter's hair when she first felt the lumps. It was a week before Christmas and she and her husband had taken their children to visit family. Her youngest daughter, Isadora, had been feverish and listless, unwilling to play or take a bottle. That's reporter Rosa Furneaux. The child she's talking about, Isadora, is one of around 3,000 Brazilian children to be diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia in 2017. Her mother, Emily, agrees to begin a grueling treatment that includes a cocktail of chemotherapy medication. But Rosa's reporting finds some of the drugs that they think are healing their daughter may be making her more sick. Hi, I'm Robert Cribb, director of the Investigative Journalism Bureau. We're a nonprofit newsroom based out of the Dalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. And this is Heliograph, a podcast examining powerful investigative work done by reporters around the globe. In the literal sense, a heliograph is a device used to photograph the sun. We chose the name because this podcast seeks to capture the brilliance, truth, and light of investigative journalism that's changing the world. We'll examine the stories behind the stories, the lessons learned, and the secrets of some of the world's top journalists. In doing so, we hope to build a playbook for investigative journalism excellence. There's much to explore, and it matters more now than ever. Join us. Hi, I'm Masi Khalatvari. And I'm Wendy Ann Clark. This month, we talked to two global health reporters, Rosa Furneaux, based in London, and Laura Margottini in Italy. Both work for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Furneaux and Margottini uncovered how faulty cancer drugs spread around the world, under the radar of health authorities, and into the veins of children who were harmed by the very medicine meant to heal them. I'm Rosa Ferno. I'm a global health reporter at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism in London. I'm Laura Margottini and I'm based in Italy. This story is expansive. It's the story of how a useless, contaminated cancer medicine spread all over the world and has been given to children with the most common kind of childhood cancer. It's a story about how regulatory agencies have let down children and their parents. It's a story about how people have put profits over children's lives. Uh, and it's a story that we really felt needed to be told as soon as we realized the scope of what was going on. The story starts in late 2020. In an interview about COVID-19 with Professor Tim Eden, a preeminent childhood cancer specialist, Rosa asks a routine question. Which is, is there anything else that you would like to tell me? And he said, yes, Rosa, this is the reason I took this call. And he proceeded to tell me all about this particular brand of cancer medicine called asparaginase that had been given to children in Brazil and which doctors there had thought might be substandard, wasn't working the way that it ought to be working. And as soon as I heard this, I mean, my first question was, sorry, what's asparaginase, this strange sounding medicine? 
he patiently took me kind of through what he knew at that point, which was that one brand of asparaginase, which is a key crucial drug for children with the most common kind of childhood cancer, are given as part of their sort of cocktail regime of medicines early on in their treatment. Rosa learns that in Brazil, doctors are worried about this particular brand of asparaginase manufactured by a Chinese company called Beijing Pharmaceutical. There is concern this potentially substandard drug might be in other Latin American countries as well. So as soon as I heard about that, I thought, oh, okay, this this could be a story for us. A brand of bad medicine being given to really sick kids in maybe two, three, possibly four countries. And that was kind of where we were going to start. But this is 2020, smack dab in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic and her editors are focused on other investigative priorities. And to be honest, it's possible that this story would never have come to light were it not for this professor, Tim Eden, emailing me pretty consistently through the whole of the next year saying, Rosa, when are you going to look into that thing that I told you about? And each time he put it at the top of my email inbox, I thought, yes, Tim, yes, I really want to look into this. I just can't right now. We finally sort of decided as a team that we were going to move on from our COVID coverage and and start to look at other issues. So this was one of those stories, I think, that it was building blocks. One thing led to another thing, led to another thing, led to another thing. We realized pretty quickly that the brand that had been used in Brazil had been found to be substandard in two separate studies by two separate fantastic researchers there. And so quite quickly, I think we had a story that said, okay, this drug that was given to children in Brazil and was later banned, it it was substandard and, and that's the end. But that wasn't a kind of good enough story, I think, for our editors. But I really had the sense, and actually so did Tim when I spoke to him later, that it might be bigger than this. It might be bigger than Brazil. And I started to talk to a handful of sources that Tim passed me to and and they passed me to, to other people. And it was one of those webs that just grew and grew. And the more that I spoke to people, the more slightly odd things started to show up. One of those sources is a Brazilian doctor who tested the original substandard brand, This doctor says they found another brand of asparaginase that had the exact same profile thousands of miles away in Haiti. So at that point I thought, right, well in that case we have a brand in Brazil and we have a brand in Haiti. What more could be out there? At that point, I I got a tip that there was maybe a problem with a brand in Saudi Arabia. I dug up a letter that had been written by a professor working in infection control at one of the major hospitals there, in which he had tested a brand of asparaginase, which had seemingly made five patients, five children, very ill. They'd been feverish, and one of them had actually died. And in his letter to his superiors at the hospital, he said, listen, we need to, to stop using this brand immediately. We need to ideally get the Saudi FDA to put out an alert to stop anyone from using this brand anywhere in the kingdom. So we started, I think, at that point to sort of build this sense, build this web in which multiple problems with multiple brands of asparaginase had kind of come to light in this patchwork all over the world over a series of years. This is between about 2017, 2018, 2019. So what does it actually mean for a cancer drug to be substandard? In many cases, they just aren't strong enough to even fight the cancer they purport to treat. 
In other cases, the drugs are contaminated with byproducts, including harmful bacteria, that could make these already immunocompromised children even sicker. In Italy, Laura gets a hold of Dr. Carmelo Rizzeri, who told them more about a brand of asparaginase used in Italian hospitals. Professor Rizzeri explained us that the golden standard of asparaginase we have in Italy, which is considered the best option for you know, survival rates and for remission of cancer that we have in Europe, was in shortage. So they had to go to the drug regulator in Italy and ask for something that was asparaginase from abroad, basically. So they had no choice. The hospital in Italy had monitored the effects of that brand of asparaginase and found that it didn't match up to the gold standard, which is the criteria used to evaluate the effectiveness of treatments. They were to use the gold standard whenever it became available again. It was not only for, you know, dodgy reasons, but just because they were in shortage. What was the moment in the investigation where you realized, whoa, we have a huge story here? The big moment for me came just a moment later. What happened at this point was that I felt that, you know, with this handful of countries, with these maybe half a dozen brands, we had enough to go to one of our senior editors and say, listen, there's a story here and I'd like to pursue it. So I got all of my material ready. I sort of sat down with him uh, one afternoon and I took him through what we had. And I was very passionate. And at the end of my presentation, he sat back in his chair and he said, Rosa, if you hadn't done so much work on this, I would nix it right now. It wasn't a story that he felt at that time was kind of good enough for our team to go all in on. And so I came out of that meeting and I turned to our editor, our desk editor, who's my sort of immediate boss. And she said, well, he didn't say no, did he? So, <laughs> so we picked it up. And it was that moment where we kind of went all in and, and, and we went full steam ahead trying to find out whether there were any other brands, whether this had spread any further. And it was at this moment, I think, that we really realised that there was something wrong. After Rosa gets the go-ahead from her editor, her attention shifts to a study by researchers that tested nine brands of asparaginase manufactured in India. There were problems with all nine brands. Where were these brands going? I went to a shipping database, an international shipping database that we have access to. But when I ran the names of these brands through our shipping database, my jaw just hit the floor because Name after name after name came up and I could I could start to track where these drugs had gone over the last five years. And suddenly we weren't just talking about a handful of countries, we were talking about nearly a hundred. And I think it's at that moment that we really knew that this story was bigger than we'd ever expected. The shipping database is called Panjiva. It's a subscription-based program that collects import and export data to show how commodities, including cancer drugs, travel around the world. There'll be a link to it in the show notes. So what went into analyzing the shipping data? 
I had access to to this database and I used it mostly, strangely enough, sort of quite late at night. And so I would spend these evenings um, typing in, you know, a brand name of one of the asparaginase products that we knew had been found substandard in one of these studies and then going through page by page and downloading the records that this database held. And I put those records into our own spreadsheet so that my team could go in there and see, you know, when they looked up a particular brand, here is all of the records that exist for that brand. Here is uh, the, the country that it was shipped from. Here's where it was shipped to. Here's the date of export. Here's the date of import. Here's the port that it arrived in. The Pangeva records also point to Europe, especially Italy, where Laura's reporting from. There, she gets the feeling the substandard drugs aren't only being used due to the shortage in the gold standard. Maybe it's just because they're cheaper. Then, she gets back records from freedom of information requests filed to Italian hospitals. And to me, this was astonishing in a way. First of all, through the FOIS, I realized that they were buying this drug for 20 euros per vial against 2,500 euros per vial of the golden drugs. They replied to us and told us the reason was not for the price, but we cannot understand what other reason there could be for importing this drug. So there are a lot of moving pieces in this story. It's a large web spread all across the world. How do you keep track of all these threads? We all pitched in. We had a, a, a big Google Drive file. People would throw things in there and ping me to say, hey, I found this. It might be interesting. I, let me pull out this chapter from, from you know this study for you. We would have these big group sessions where we'd all get on Zoom uh, and, and talk about, you know, one person would take one part of the supply chain and go and do some work on it to understand what was going on there. And someone would take, would take the next part. And so as a team, we'd be able to sort of piece that together. Most investigations get to this boiling point that's known as the accountability interview. When you put all the questions and allegations in a story to the person, government, company, or entity that it's all about. For the story, of course, one of those companies is Beijing Pharmaceutical. Now, most of the manufacturers didn't get back to us or give us any kind of comment. Those who did denied all wrongdoing. Beijing SL Pharmaceutical is a manufacturer in China who made both the original brand used in Brazil and also, it seemed, uh, the brand that was used in Haiti. So we have, we approached uh, the company and, and said, listen, this is, um, you know, this is the evidence that we have that people have found that your asparaginase products are substandard. They told us uh, that their drug is tested by Chinese regulators and assessed in-house uh, where they claimed the quality results have stayed within statutory limits, you know, over the past decade. But that wasn't what the studies that the Brazilians and others had found. And what did the investigation teach you about the pharmaceutical industry? So what really shocked me was to see the government and people in charge, regulators in charge of protecting patients and our kids, just saying, appealing to the law and saying, for us, it's not mandatory by law to check on these drugs. 
And the second thing that really shocked me again, so was more on the side of those that should be controlling the drug industry rather than the drug industry itself. In Italy, Laura found that informed consent paperwork doesn't detail the particular brand or origin of the drugs prescribed for chemotherapy. All that's included is the active ingredient used. So if you're a parent in Italy, you don't know exactly what drug they're giving your kid. This to me is really, really, really astonishing and, you know, leaving people completely in the dark in this way and this lack of transparency to me is really, really, this is something that really touched me in the heart because you can't protect yourself, you can't protect your kids because you give for granted that you are in a very good hospital, you're signing the right papers, but they don't let you know that they bought a drug that cost 20 euros a vial against 2,500 a vial of the golden standard. With such an expansive and ambitious project, the feeling of discouragement is inevitable. One of the things that I found so important with this story was about finding my North Star. It was so overwhelming at points, and the moment that we realized the true scope of the problem, there was a moment where I sort of thought, is this worth it? Is it too big? Can we piece this together? And if we do, will it actually make a difference? There's a problem on a global scale. Can one small team at a British investigative outlet really make any kind of difference here? And my North Star was thinking about those children like Isadora. There are children at the heart of this thing and there are parents at the heart of this thing who deserve the best care that we can give them. And it's not right that people profit off their pain. It's not right that they're receiving drugs which are substandard. And so it was right at the very end of my reporting that I got to meet Isadora and her mum, Emily. I think that it took me so long in part because we needed to piece all those pieces together first before I could understand who it was that I was meeting and how they fit into the puzzle. But I flew out to Brazil in part to meet doctors uh, who had done some of these studies, but mostly to meet the children at the heart of the story. Now, Isadora lives uh, with her mum and her siblings in a small uh, house up a, a steep hill uh, on the outskirts of uh, Porto Alegre, which is a, um, a city in southern Brazil. And we drove for maybe an hour, an hour and a half, and we, we stopped the car at the bottom of this hill and we all got out uh, you know, with, with our backpacks and, and walked up uh, until we, we reached this small house. And a, a very small, nervous little girl peeked out through the gate at me and gave me a little wave. Uh, and I don't speak Portuguese and she didn't speak English, but through a translator, an interpreter, we were able to have a conversation with her and her mum about her cancer treatment and how it had gone. It was kind of astonishing for me to finally be sat in front of the reason that we had spent a year, a year and a half doing this investigation. It's for children like Isadora who deserve the best care that we can give them, that we were trying to, to find out exactly how this drug had moved around the world and exactly what was wrong with it. Thankfully, Isadora gets to all clear just a few days before their arrival. 
Doctors figured out she was taking the substandard brand and sourced a better quality one quick enough. She was going to be okay. She also told me that she wants to be a cancer doctor when she grows up and treat more children like her so that more children can get better. And I think after meeting her, it was much easier to remember why we were doing what we were doing. And it meant that when we got a letter threatening legal action from one of the manufacturers, I was able to sort of stand up to my editors and say, no, we're st we still need to run this. Look at this recording, look at this little girl. There's a reason why we're doing what we're doing and it's for children like her. Since the stories were published, a major medical journal wrote an editorial calling for better standards. The Italian Senate launched an inquiry about how the brands were getting into the country. Questions were raised at the European Commission, where Laura was invited to speak. And doctors from around the world reacted to the news, stopping their patients from receiving substandard brands. Now, researchers are developing a test for doctors to tell if their asparaginase is okay. But more can still be done. And I think some of my sources really wanted to see major action taken by the WHO once our story was published. They wanted to see a big alert go out. They wanted to see the WHO taking effective, decisive action to get rid of these brands. But instead, what we got really seemed to be radio silence. The WHO really didn't want, it felt to me, to talk to us. They didn't want to engage with me during the reporting process. And in the months since, we haven't seen a whole lot of movement from them. The WHO says they haven't received enough evidence that some asparaginase brands are problematic, which, given Rosa and Laura's reporting, leaves many researchers flabbergasted. Part of our goal in conducting these interviews is to build a playbook on excellence in public interest investigative journalism. We ask reporters to reflect on the larger wisdom and insight that these stories gave them and how to shape their work. Don't take anything for granted. Like, for example, don't really always get in love too much with your initial hypothesis. Because, for example, in Europe, we started with the hypothesis that these drugs were being imported into Europe because of the shortages of the golden standard. And we ended up uncovering that hospitals were importing them even when the golden standard was available. And it was a big shift for us in understanding that and required like two months of work because we were looking at the wrong side in, in this case. Yeah, I guess if I was going to give advice coming out of this story, it would be trust yourself. If you have doubt, it's good. You should doubt what you're finding out. You should question everything. You should always wonder whether you're getting it right all the way up until that final moment when it's been through the fact check and the lawyers. You should question everything. But at the heart of it, if there's a story that won't let you go, that's the story you need to be doing. And I think that we felt that with this piece. And even though it took a long time, even though it was difficult, even though it came with degrees of legal risk, we knew it was something that we needed to pursue. And so we did. And I think that if you can keep that little pit inside you that says, this is my story and this is what I need to be doing right now, the rest will follow. You'll find a way. You'll get through the hard parts. And I guess that's what we learned when we were doing this. I'm Massey Khalatbari. And I'm Wendy Ann Clark. Thanks for listening. 
Heliograph celebrates and amplifies reporting that creates meaningful change. It reflects the Investigative Journalism Bureau's core values of collaborative and innovative storytelling in the public interest. The IJB is an award-winning nonprofit newsroom. Learn more about our projects and how you can support this work at ijb.utoronto.ca.